A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp. Witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm flying solo again. Everyone's abandoned me, but it's okay because I have a really fun guest with me today. I have Amy Wilson, who's a historian and researcher who specializes in the history of dress with a particular interest in pregnancy, clothing and the body in the 18th century. Hi, Amy. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm this really is exciting. It is exciting. <laughs> you um, you met. We met at uh, our women's thing. We dragged you on. We forced you at gunpoint. History point. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> forced you in a way to say, "Come and talk about your subject," because it's really fun. So um, yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. Exciting stuff for for men, more women, but you know, men don't switch off. Cause this is for you too. Exactly. There's a lot to learn because we don't tend to talk about some of the what's the better way of saying this more unknown I don't even know how to say this properly unknown stuff. so for example we talk about military history we talk about the rich we talk about other aspects of history but we don't tend to talk about women what women went through and women things because they're kind of invisible at this time weren't they um yes so what we're going to be talking today about is women's experiences of being pregnant um there's information that we already know about the experience of giving birth and experiences of being a mother but we don't know very much about the experience of being pregnant carrying a child and one of the um things that I like to do is look at clothing as a way of finding evidence about pregnancy um because as you say a lot of this stuff isn't written down so we can find out via clothing bits and pieces about what it was like to be pregnant and what pregnant women looked like as well in the past well that's really interesting that you bring up that point because we don't actually think of the process we think of the birthing we think of taking care of children raising children but we don't actually think of the pregnant. You've just made me think a lot there because I wouldn't have thought of that process till you've mentioned it. And it's a really interesting process. So why is it so important to, to understand these experiences? It's important for lots of reasons. Um, the birth itself might last a day or two days, maybe three days if you're unlucky. But the pregnancy is nine months per child and we're looking at a time when um, in the 18th century I look at the long 18th century women had six or seven children um, 
average. So that's six or seven years, basically, of their lives being pregnant, carrying a baby, their baby, their bodies being different, their bodies being a different shape, a different size, a different weight, and all of the different things that come with pregnancy as well. And um, so I think it's important to draw attention to that because because so many women had so many babies it means that women looked pregnant a lot of the time um so if we imagine your average Jane Austen adaptation on the tv you've got a group scene you know maybe one of those sort of big balls or something um with lots of women in it a big number of them would be pregnant or or maybe have a postpartum body so they might be lactating or still look a bit pregnant or you know their body is still in recovery from having given birth and that's what that's what women look like a lot of the time um one of my fascinating statistics that I'm really interested in is that um we know about Queen Charlotte the um queen of George III and she had a lot of children um she was pregnant 16 times at least that 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 I've been able to find evidence for and it means that she was pregnant for 35 percent of her adult life um it is huge proportion of her lived experience it's a lot of her time it's a lot of her body um and we just don't know very much about that what's quite curious is in the 18th century portraits of women were painted when they were pregnant but the actual pregnant shape of their body was painted out so we know that Queen Charlotte was painted when she was pregnant but her body doesn't look pregnant particularly we know that she was painted with her children so she was sort of depicted as a mother um, and with the future George the Fourth in the painting to show this sort of succession, um, but but she doesn't actually look pregnant in any of her portraits, and so it means that we just don't imagine her as being pregnant. But when we um, think about the court of George the Third, there is this maternal body at the centre of it. Um, for, for most of the time, she was pregnant pretty much continuously for 20 years straight. It's astonishing, um, absolutely astonishing, from 1762 um, till 1783, she was she was pregnant. Um, That's many, a bloody long time. It's a bloody long time. And it's also pregnancies one after the other, so there's not really the time for the body to kind of heal from from birth number one before she was pregnant with baby number two and and so on so there's two things I want to bring up that you've just spoken about that have just piqued my interest. I'm going off topic I really don't care that I'm going off topic but one when you explained like this Jane Austen thing this scene you know where everybody goes and and they're at this party they're at a ball and everybody's there when you see this on tv all of these women sorry all of these women are slim and beautiful that nobody shows that they're actually pregnant and that's really interesting that modern day tv not modern day tv but modern day drama doesn't depict that at all they just completely wipe it out that's right yeah it it, it is 
a misunderstanding of what human women look like. And I think a lot of people like to talk about the historical inaccuracies in costume dramas. And sometimes people get kind of het up about if um, the the heroines got sort of beautiful, long flowing locks when, when most women in the 18th century had their hair tied up most of the time, um, things like that. But this, this is also a historical inaccuracy. This is also something that should be or c- could be represented more more accurately whenever you do see a pregnant body in a in a period drama it's usually central to the plot it's um because the show is telling the story of a woman having a baby and the other thing I wanted to ask was so was it on average that women had seven children yes six to well six to seven live births so it's not that's not necessarily the number of pregnancies. What um, about the pregnancies? How many do you know roughly on average there would have been um, in the 18th century? I don't know. We we don't have the data for that. I don't know. Okay. Um, no, it's just, it's just out of curiosity. No, 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 absolutely. It, it's fascinating. Yeah, we do, we don't have the data because pregnancies just weren't recorded in the way that they are today. Um, one of the curious things about pregnancy in the past is that you couldn't just sort of pee on a stick and find out straight away that you were pregnant um the process took months months of maybe gathering potential symptoms thinking oh I feel a bit feel a bit weird my period's a bit late my boobs feel different maybe or um that sort of that you're gathering symptoms um to to sort of decide whether possibly you're pregnant. So it means that if a woman was um, sexually active, she, she could could potentially be pregnant all the time. You just wouldn't know. Like Queen Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> there's, no, there's no real way of knowing until you were really quite far on, like maybe three or four months in. Okay, one more question off topic, only because this, <laughs> all of these questions are now hitting me literally in the face as we're talking. <laughs> so we talk, here we're going to be talking about being pregnant. We've mm. also, there's loads of studies being done of uh, people giving birth, blah, 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 blah. What about the question of miscarriage? Is this ever talked about? Is there any evidence for this? And do people say something about it? Is it discussed in any way? It's not discussed very much. Um, I, I would say that lost pregnancies is something that, as a society now, today, we're culturally not very well equipped for dealing with and, and looking after those who've experienced pregnancy loss. Um, in the in the past, you could you could miscarry without knowing it, um, because if it was a very early um, uh, loss of the pregnancy you you might not know that you'd even had a miscarriage you could just your your period could be very late and then very heavy and you wouldn't know later term um uh pregnancy loss is is recorded a bit more often particularly for the women that i um study who are very elite very wealthy royal women aristocratic women um when the pregnancy was recorded 
and then the pregnancy was lost, then that would be there is evidence of that, but still, but still not huge quantities of evidence. There weren't newspaper announcements or anything like that. There are records, um, but it tends to be private records, letters, medical notes and things like this. Certainly Marie Antoinette experienced a very late term miscarriage and that, that's, that's documented. We know about that. Do we know of any of their experience? Do any of them actually say what they feel or and we're winging this at the moment and I'm really sorry that I'm just it's like I said this has brought out loads of questions in my brain that we should be following which we'll go back to I promise this is the last one <laughs> do we have any experiences written like you said in letters diaries and, and various different things do any of them actually talk about it a, a bit a bit not a lot certainly letters um between women who are pregnant, they talk a lot about health. They talk a lot that sort of implies concern and anxiety because no no pregnancy was 100% safe. Um, so there is this culture of, you know, we don't know, let's hope that this works. Um, lots of references to God and praying and and things like this, hoping that it it will work out. I've I've not found any I've not found anything so far, particularly of of women recording heartbreak on on this sort of subject. Okay, let's go back on track now. Apologies for the million and one sixty five thousand questions. <laughs> not at all. No, it's um really interesting stuff. Yeah, it's because, like you said, we do just don't talk about certain aspects. And obviously, miscarriage, even now, it's a bit taboo. Women just don't want to talk about it. And they don't, like you said, they don't have the infrastructure to be able to deal with such a loss. And people just don't seem to care. They seem to care more about having a, a live child. And a one that isn't here is not just as, anyway, that's a, that is a whole different other issue that we need to talk about. But let's come back to this idea of women being pregnant you would think that they found out they were pregnant and what they're going to end up do is they're just going to sit in bed all day and do nothing. Is this the same thing that would have happened in the 18th century? Um, no, not at all, no. If the um, if the woman was well, which I think looking at the sources that I've seen, most of them were you know, reasonably fit and healthy for most of their pregnancies. They were out and about and doing all sorts of of different things so um the idea of pregnant woman in bed wearing some sort of big white um uh chemise is just is is just not the case in the 18th century so you would see pregnant women everywhere um the uh, lady mary walkley montague was the uh, wife of a british representative who was based in turkey and she was traveling around turkey pregnant and uh, wearing often wearing um, Turkish inspired clothing um, because it was more comfortable and more adaptable it was easier to wear to, uh, that style of clothing than than more sort of Western European clothing and um, we've got yeah lots and lots of records of women socializing hosting parties going out and about um charlotte guest was pregnant 
and uh, very, very, very pregnant, nine months pregnant, and um, hosted a party um, at her house. And it was sort of went on until two o'clock in the morning. She writes about not being able to sit down because she was the hostess and all of the guests had sat, you know, nicked all the chairs. Um, and she gave birth two weeks later. Hold on, you've got to you've got to put your priorities straight, right? You gave the baby instead. <laughs> let's host the party. Yeah, <laughs> I've got found loads of brilliant examples of pregnant women attending court, um, which is just fascinating. I love the idea of um, all of these pregnant women going to court, spending time in you know with the royal family and in the royal palaces. Really sometimes really quite heavily pregnant you've already just touched on this especially with the turkish uh turkish clothing turkish how would you say it correctly my brain is switching into polish uh, not outfits but um dress hmm. you've we've touched on this what other things can we know about pregnant women through their clothing at this time period um, we can learn loads of loads of things. We can see a lot of things about the practical makeup of the clothes, a lot of a very ingenious and inventive design um, techniques to make clothing that could be adapted, clothing that was maybe more comfortable, um, maybe more sort of sympathetic to the to the the size and shape of a of a pregnant body. Um, we know that we also know because of the sorts of clothing that women are recorded wearing, we can tell where they were, what they were doing. Um, this is a time when, particularly for very elite women, you had a specific dress code or a specific outfit that you wore for different activities, being in different places. Um, and you would maybe change clothing two or three times a day based on what you were what you were up to so from that we can see again more evidence of where women were going when they were pregnant what what were they doing um they weren't just wearing a shift which was like a a nightgown basically they were they were out and going and and doing um the the idea of a, a pregnant woman at at court we know we can see from the records what they were wearing at court while pregnant it's just absolutely fascinating and uh yeah i just love the i've got some fabulous examples here actually i'm going to find an example for you of, go for um, it we love a good example give us a uh, nice yeah. little description of a good example go on yes absolutely love a good example oh gosh this is a very good one lady lavinia spencer and she was um pregnant with the Honourable William Spencer in 1792 and this is how she described her experience of being at court. Oh, 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 my hips, my feet, my head. Court was fuller than a birthday and lasted an eternity um, and uh, she was about, I think she was about five months, five to six months pregnant and uh, clearly really uncomfortable but she's but she's going to go anyway. It's very important for women to be at court. Um, it was a it was a responsibility. It was a duty, but it was also an arena where they could get their voices heard. When um, elite women couldn't go to Parliament and they couldn't further their um, political and personal initiatives there, they they had power at court. They could make connections. They could see their ideas and ideals 
furthered. You know, there was there was room for advancement by going to court. So they weren't going to stop doing it just because they were pregnant. And in fact, actually, in some ways, it's even more important that they went to court because um, their pregnant bodies were evidence that their family was growing and that their their marriage was being sort of reproductively successful. Um, they were going to be having heirs and spares and uh, and growing their their family, growing their power. If I'm not mistaken, this time period was also quite prominent for corsets, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yes. Did they wear them? I mean, God, I can't imagine being pregnant and wearing a corset. Please tell me they did not wear corsets at this time. <laughs> You're going to disappoint me, though, aren't you? Yes, they did. They did wear corsets. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Ouch. Yes. Well, not necessarily. Um, I think that corsets sometimes get a bit of a bad rap. Um, so in the 18th century, they wore something called stays, a pair of stays. But that basically was it was a corset. And that's just the, the language that they used. Um, by the 1770s, 1780s, they were pretty solid. They were pretty structured, um, I would say but not necessarily uncomfortable. Um, they were, particularly for the women that I researched, they had a lot of money, they could afford um, a pair of stays that was made to measure. Rather bizarrely, it was usually the job of a man to be the stay maker. So I, I find it fascinating, this idea of a, um, a, a man coming into a lady's sort of private dressing room and somehow measuring her for a pair of stays it seems unlikely but but that's uh that's how it worked and um they weren't necessarily uncomfortable they were supposed to provide structure they provided support for the breasts in a very similar way to a bra um and so not wearing your stays was kind of culturally quite similar to not wearing a bra you wouldn't sort of necessarily go to somewhere formal with your without your bra on <laughs> yes. um, sorry would... I'm just gonna have swinging boobies everywhere it's fine <laughs> exactly it was it was a practical garment because it's holding your body sort of up and in place there was a fashion element to it it's certainly I'm not going to say it wasn't in entirely functional it did provide a cosmetic function of holding the body in a certain way holding the torso in a shape that was fashionable which was sort of a conical shape at this point so this isn't um your uh victorian corsets that kind of pulled you in in the middle and made it a, a tiny waist um the fashion at this point was actually to wear stays that were sort of flat at the front and sort of pushed your boobs in and up rather than like a curvy shape but there definitely wasn't any of this kind of pulling on laces to squeeze someone in all of that's just complete nonsense <laughs> really at this point and the the stays were really pretty comfortable if you um talk to historical reenactors often they will describe wearing stays as like having a very firm hug <laughs> it's yeah. um, have pressure. you ever worn one have you ever tried one I have it's it's pressure but it's not painful so and, it's quite uh, literally like a firm hug hmm, exactly 
And so when women were pregnant, they wore stays that were adapted for pregnancy. Um, so one of the things that's really important uh, to understand is that women would have been wearing stays or some sort of structured supporting undergarment from being children. So this is something that bodily, culturally, they were very, very used to doing. And it would have felt very odd to, to not, not wear um, a pair of states while you were pregnant but they did actually they did actually support the maternal body quite well when you're pregnant you've got your your boobs tend to be bigger so you need more support not not less um a lot of re reinforced um uh support at the lower back which was pretty pretty important pretty useful when you're pregnant and it also sort of supported the bump and the the weight of baby a bit as well you can buy garments now from maternity shops uh, that that do something quite similar to what a maternity corset did, what maternity pair of stays did, of kind of supporting the the weight of the bump, supporting the lower back. That that sort of thing is uh, is still something that you can buy today, and um, and that's so the main way that maternity stays were made were with side laces so you had your lacing at the front or at the back as as typical and then additional panels of lacing on the on the sides and they could be let out to make the circumference of the of the bottom of the stays wider um so that that was the most usual design i have seen other designs um as well but that style of stays is Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com what what you tend to find for pregnancy well that kind of makes sense at the end of the day because you don't want to be completely constricted as your bump kind of grows and it's a bit similar to like getting pregnancy genes that have a elastic waistband. And as you grow bigger and bigger and bigger, then basically it kind of still supports you in a way. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, um, that's the thing. I think culturally we're kind of attuned to seeing corsets and stays as somehow um, hindering or oppressing women. Um but but that's that's just that's just not the case. Um, the other thing that they did have as well was something called a pair of jumps, which was basically like a waistcoat. Um, the Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough, talks about wearing um, what she describes as a, a waistcoat, like a man's waistcoat wrapped around her. And uh, so that was that was also popular um, and could be worn during pregnancy. It was also quite popular for wearing if you were unwell um or doing kind of manual manual work 
you could wear a, a pair of jumps and they were they were sort of quilted like a waistcoat they could be boned a bit but maybe not anything like as much as a pair of stays um so they provided some structure and some support but but to a far like lesser extent they were more supple and more bendy basically more more uh, easy to mold to the body um but they still provided some some support particularly for the around the bust area and uh so they could be worn during pregnancy but for very elite women they would have worn that at home but they wouldn't have worn a pair of jumps in a in a formal setting I have a question obviously we've been talking about women who are quite proud to show that they're pregnant caught and things like that but were there any women who tried to hide their pregnancies with their clothing? Yes, definitely. Um, I think illegitimacy is a, a big, obvious reason to um, hide hide a pregnancy. Um, but not the only reason. Certainly, um, the uh, Countess of Bespra, who was called Harriet, she... Uh, she hid a pregnancy. I, I don't know quite how she did this. It's recorded that she hid a pregnancy so successfully that her husband and her mother didn't know about it. Um, <laughs> it was an illegitimate pregnancy in 1800. So this is the time when you've got the higher waisted sort of um, diaphanous kind of flowing sort of dresses, which possibly helped her um, to hide this pregnancy. But yeah, some, in, certainly there is no written record of either her mother or her husband knowing anything about this. I think she achieved it in part by being, you know, just not in the same house as them. And I think there was, it must have been a pretty open secret in some ways because some of her friends and family knew certainly her sister knew um and they helped her to hide it but she she managed to prevent this social ostracism or being cut off financially from her husband by hiding her pregnancy it could be a very dangerous business um potentially hiding pregnancy there's a lot of um literature particularly from the beginning of the 18th century which is about the perils of tight lacing so if you're trying to hide um your pregnant pregnant body by lacing yourself into your stays in a tight way that that could be very dangerous I and mean, it would be very very painful it would be deeply uncomfortable but it could potentially cause um harm to the baby and it could cause harm to the mother and so there are medical documents that kind of advise against advise against that um and almost almost sort of imply the sort of almost the wickedness of vanity over good health or vanity over taking your maternal responsibility seriously we've touched on this already a little bit but i'm actually a little bit interested about the fashion trends as you mentioned, some of the stays were sort of laced at the side, the front and the back. So you kind of sort of expand yourself a little bit. I'm assuming this was a bit of a fashion trend. Um, it 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 wasn't. It wasn't. Um, I would say that one of the curious features of the 18th century is that the leaders of fashion were the the wealthy aristocratic 
um, women of the day. So they had this kind of dual responsibility of being um, having a lot of agency and a lot of power as a fashion leader but then also having a lot of familial responsibility to produce a lot of male heirs for their family, um, particularly for the for the royal family. This was national news um, for, for the Queen. This was kind of statecraft, really. This was an example of um, political capital. And so it, it, it means that you've got... Um, women who actually led fashion through their pregnancies. Um, the Duchess of Devonshire was very famously a fashion leader. There was tons and tons of information all the time. I think sometimes it's practically daily about where she was and what she was wearing and the ideas that she had about her clothing. So she designed a lot of the clothes that she wore herself. And um, she was pretty talented I mean it, it sort of frowned upon and looked at as, as frivolous or um, a bit silly but she was a, a talented woman and she used um, a lot of knowledge and a lot of wit and a lot of very creative ideas in her in her clothing designs and when she was pregnant she didn't stop doing that she just kept doing it um, so quite a lot of the clothing that she wore when she was pregnant was being followed by followed by others she certainly Marie Antoinette was pregnant when she was painted wearing a robe en chemise um and this very famous portrait uh kind of sp spread that the fashion for that kind of style so this was at the time it was very controversial because she was wearing a dress that was very different to what um the the French court gowns looked like and so it was something very light very unstructured um the fabric was sort of um cotton or muslin and um it was held in place just with a sash around the waist and a drawstring at the neck and maybe drawstrings at the sleeves um so you can see when you know that she was pregnant when she was wearing that you can see how that is very practical very functional um way of wearing clothing for pregnancy she's she's wearing something that is light it's airy it's adaptable um and and that fashion really took on um so the the artist for that portrait which is um uh elizabeth Le Brun, um she painted women wearing dresses like that from the 18 from the sorry 1780-ish onwards but it was only after 1783 when Marie Antoinette was wearing it in her portrait that it really took on and um, she actually sent an example of this sort of chemise gown to the Duchess of Devonshire because the pair of them were correspondents they wrote to each other um, I, I don't know if they ever met maybe some of your listeners will be able to comment on that but um she certainly uh, the Duchess of Devonshire received these chemise gowns from Marie Antoinette she wore them and then very soon that style of clothing took on it was very popular um and 
probably within three or four years, this was a very standard style of dress for everybody. Um, and so all women, whether they were pregnant or not, were were wearing the sort of chemise gown and um, usually with a, a straw hat and a big, a big sash around the waist, um, which was very adaptable. It's a very practical way of dressing and very, very different from the, the starting point. So this idea that the Duchess of Devonshire and Marie Antoinette kind of corresponded, you don't know, um, like you said, somebody probably out there knows that they've met, which they'll probably make us a comment about that. But the idea that they communicated through letters and, and dresses and blah, 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 was there sort of, I don't know how to phrase this correctly, but was there sort of like a fashion journalism at this time? Because obviously they communicated through letters. How did this get to the wider audience? Very good question. The ideas for fashionable clothing spread through a couple of different things. One is that this was the very start of what we would today consider to be fashion journalism. Um, this was the very beginning of printed local and national press describing what women were wearing. Um, it was particularly what women were wearing at court, but it was also what they were wearing in very fashionable public spaces. So this also coincides with a time when very wealthy women were occupying spaces that their social inferiors were there as well. They could see what the Duchess of Devonshire was wearing. They could describe it in their letters and you see examples of fashion being recorded in diaries and letters in London and then posted to relatives in other parts of the country so you would get a fashion from Paris into London and then a fashion from London up to Sheffield or Newcastle or Leeds and uh, so that's partly how how the um, information about fashion was spreading um, and, it, and it was also quite heavily recorded and there was a lot of interest in it it was not always very positive um, there was a lot of criticism as well um, and you do get journalistic reports of women's clothing being quite negatively reported as well as as well as positive reports but um it means as a fashion historian or historian of dress it means that there's a lot of information there about what what women were wearing and there was also a lot of um opportunities for for buying were quite different so this was the the beginning of a a consumer kind of society, a society that was able to observe what wealthy people had, the commodities that they had, and then they were able to emulate them um, in maybe with less expensive materials or maybe in a simpler way. But there was this um, commercial uh, culture of being able to buy being able to buy the, the sort of replicas of what they'd seen in fashionable spaces what they'd seen at the theater or at the opera or at a pleasure garden they would be able to see what other more um more wealthy women were wearing and they could copy it got to say this whole idea that women were criticized for the fashion they were wearing god that's never finished that's still going on i mean like what in the 60s 
the dress as skirts were too short in the 70s I don't know the the tops were too short what you know whatever even nowadays jeans are too tight women are wearing uh having their boobs more on show or you know whatever it is and it's still going to continue probably till the end of time that women are always going to be criticized I suspect so. I've got a lovely example here. It's in The Art of Dress, 1717. Um, and it says, oft I have seen a mantua pinned amiss, make people sneer and almost cause a hiss for not ill-fancied or a tawdry gown. Ill-natured critics cry the women down. And it's not much has changed. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's not it's it's never going to change really at the end of the day. But hey, imagine if they saw what we were wearing today. <laughs> heart attack alert! Heart attack alert! <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about post-pregnancy because it's quite an interesting thing about fashion and dress. Like you mentioned before, like right at the beginning of our conversation about women um post-pregnancy with their bodies and things like that but were they nursing at this time was there some sort of fashion dress style that would allow them to nurse their children when they need to and if they didn't what was the alternative um at the at the beginning of the 18th century women we do have records of of wealthy women breastfeeding their own children and there are examples which we are pretty sure are examples of um early pairs of stays that have been adapted specifically for um for breastfeeding they've almost got like breastfeeding flaps kind of added to them or incorporated in them um but it was once the enlightenment had really taken off and um, towards the sort of the latter part of the 18th century, there was this real shift in what it meant to be a mother. And I think it's it's not a it's not an exaggeration to say that motherhood was almost fashionable. Um, it it would it really really changed what what it meant to be a mother um, at the uh, beginning of the 18th century pregnancy and birth was sort of the end of your maternal responsibilities um whereas by the by the end of the 18th century that was the that was the beginning of your maternal responsibilities and women were expected to be sentimental mothers and interested in raising kind of healthy natural strong well clean children um so uh, that meant that you got fashionable breastfeeding among elite women. Certainly the Duchess of Devonshire breastfed her own children. And um, I think that probably encouraged others to do the same. Curious thing about breastfeeding your own children if you're an aristocrat is it means that you're less likely to conceive again anytime soon. So it was possibly... That it's possible that women were, <clears throat> excuse me, that women were discouraged from breastfeeding their own children so that they could have more children. But by the end of the 18th century, uh, doing your own breastfeeding was was becoming quite fashionable to the point that women were actually painted the portraits of women 
breastfeeding their own babies. And this is a huge financial investment. This is a time when um, it was very expensive to have a, a professional portrait made and it took a long time it took months to do um so this is a big investment of time and money to represent for, for a woman to be represented nursing her nursing her children and we see it in the clothing as well there is more practical ways that a woman could breastfeed her children in wearing elite clothing um towards the end of the 18th century at the end of the day, is there a way that we could compare today with the 18th century and women pregnancy and their bodies? Lots, lots and lots, lots and lots and lots. There's so much overlap. Um, when you think about some of the the icons of today and how their pregnancies have been managed, it's fascinating. Thinking about Rihanna um, and her pregnancies and her wearing quite sort of revealing clothing maybe quite sexy clothing and um, is it socially acceptable for mothers to be sexy is it acceptable for mothers to be um, doing maybe dangerous jobs or maybe jobs that are very different culturally from um, a maternal appearance Um, is it is it socially acceptable to be headlining the Super Bowl while while pregnant and wearing you know quite revealing clothing these are some of the things that we still grapple with today what what culturally we expect motherhood and, and the pregnancy to look like um do we want pregnant women to dress in a way that is maybe quite responsible or a bit more demure right up until the late 1980s early 1990s women were wearing these massive big smocks and think of princess diana wearing the most enormous um uh sort of flowing smocks so you know that she is pregnant it's not it's not like she's trying to hide her pregnancy she's just trying to cover her pregnant body um and so that that sort of displaying and concealing at the same time is something that you get in the 20th and 21st century. Um, and we still now have a lot of questions and maybe some double standards in what we think pregnant women should look like and the amount of agency they should have. Um, is it possible to be in charge and be pregnant is it under does it undermine um your authority to be pregnant and in charge of something um is it things like this that i feel we're still not getting right um or with there's there's awkwardness there where i think maybe there shouldn't be amy this has been excellent thank you so much uh, i really enjoyed this learning about the pregnancy of other women, especially in the 18th century, something that, as we've mentioned, we don't talk about. It's been whitewashed out of TV. You don't see it on, I don't know, Bridgerton or what is it? Oh, the Duchess was another one, for example, or uh, any of the um, Jane Austen novels that have been put onto TV. None, none of that. You just don't see it. So it's been great to be able to talk about this. You've got to come back when you finish writing your book. Tell us. Are you, when is this due? When are you supposed to be doing this book? 
I think it I think it might be a year or two yet. Um, that's fine. But I'm working on it. That's fine. You will be back. We will get you to talk a little bit more because this has been excellent. I've really enjoyed this. And I am not an 18th century historian and I've sat here captivated. So you have done a job that many people can't do. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.